I'm Dr. Brian Goldman, host of the CBC podcast, The Dose. Each week, we answer vital health questions that will help you thrive, like, what does my mental health have to do with my gut? How can I prevent melanoma? How much sleep do I really need? And how can I manage my health without a family doctor? I chat with the top experts to bring you the latest evidence in plain language, all in about 20 minutes. Find The Dose on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, I'm Laura Lynch, and you're listening to What on Earth? There are moments when the great challenges of our time collide, and that time, we are told, is now. The twin challenges, the environment, and racism. Witness this tour of a black community in Shelburne, Nova Scotia. This lady's husband died of cancer. She's quite sick now herself with cancer. The, the man that built this house, him and his wife died of cancer. Their daughter uh, lives in Birchtown now. She had cancer, survived cancer. That's from the film documentary, There's Something in the Water. It tells the story of environmental racism in Nova Scotia through the eyes of those living with it and dying from its consequences. But it's a nationwide problem. Within weeks, the House of Commons is set to debate proposed legislation with no certainty about whether it will become law. And Ingrid Waldron is watching. I hope I'm not disappointed. But if it doesn't, I continue on. That's just what I've done. I don't give up, and we do another bill. Waldron helped produce the documentary and wrote the book it's based on. As we look back at Black History Month and look ahead to the bill up for debate in just a few weeks, we examine the intricate connections between climate justice and environmental racism and the ways in which people are taking action, from protests to politics to jobs. To quote one activist, green is not white. We start today looking ahead to a proposed bill that, if passed, would hold the government accountable for environmental racism. Ingrid Waldron consulted on that bill. She's an associate professor in the Faculty of Health at Dalhousie University, and she's done groundbreaking research on environmental racism in Canada. She's the author of There's Something in the Water, Environmental Racism in Indigenous and Black Communities. It was turned into a Netflix documentary in 2019. Ingrid Waldron, hello. Hi there. Before we dive into the bill, uh, I wonder if you could explain what environmental racism is. Environmental racism is a concept that describes uh, racial discrimination primarily uh, in the disproportionate location and greater exposure of Indigenous communities, Black communities, and other racialized communities to contamination and pollution from polluting industries. But it's also about the fact that these are communities that also lack political and economic clout. I mean, you have political and economic clout, you're better able to fight back against the location of uh, these sites in your community. And the other aspect of uh, environmental racism is connected to that, the fact that in many ways these communities are invisible communities to government. They don't matter as much. And when they don't matter as much, it takes you a lot longer to address their issues. And then the final aspect of environmental racism is the fact that um, it continues to manifest over time because the communities that are most impacted in Canada would be Indigenous communities and African Nova Scotian communities. They're not um, participating in decision-making boards or regulatory commissions or 
NGOs, you know, the people who are most impacted, you just don't see them at the table. And therefore, you develop policies that miss the mark in many ways. Now, your book uses Nova Scotia as a case study. Can you paint us a picture of what you found in Black and Indigenous communities in that province? Yeah, I mean, it was a combination of research, but also a mapping project. So what I found is that landfills, waste dumps, pulp and paper mills, brine discharge pipeline are projects that have been placed in Indigenous and Black communities in Nova Scotia, specifically Mi'kmaq communities, that's the Indigenous community here, and African Nova Scotian communities. Um, but what I've also found is that these sites, there are impacts socioeconomically and certainly politically, but also in terms of people's health and mental health. And many of these communities would say that they've noticed that increasing rates of cancer have occurred in their community since a particular waste site was placed there. For me, it's it's a health issue, it's a social issue, it's an economic issue, and it's a political issue. And that's what I've been seeing uh, over the past uh, nine years. You, you're actually forming a, a new national coalition on environmental racism. Can you tell me about mm-hmm. that? We put out a call for organizations working in the environmental climate change sector. The end goal, of course, is addressing environmental racism in Indigenous and Black communities. And the work is being organized through six different working groups. And one of the key ones would look at legislation and policy and how we can support one another. All right. Let's talk about the legislation. You consulted on Bill C-230. It's called an act respecting the development of a national strategy to redress environmental racism. What's in the bill? The bill is an updated, revised version of the 2015 bill that I developed with Lenore Zan. Um, This bill, however, has more teeth. It's different because it's a federal bill, but it has some information in it that certainly wasn't included in the first bill and that I think is really important, one of which is the collection of disaggregated race-based data. To see how racialized people are faring, you certainly need to collect data, but we don't do that. They do that in the United States. We're also asking the government to provide uh, reparations to the communities. This is something that many of the communities that I work with, particularly uh, Lincolnville, the African Nova Scotian community there, who have said that they want reparations. They want financial compensation for the fallout of the landfill. Uh, We're also asking, we've always asked uh, government to do this, to meet with communities, to consult with communities. That was in the first bill. But this is something that I think, uh, in large part, government does not do. How do we do that more frequently? But how do we do that in culturally specific ways, right? Just because you're consulting with a community doesn't mean that you're doing it in the ways in which they would like. Now, you mentioned Lenore Zahn, who is the Nova Scotia Mm -hmm. Liberal MP who introduced it as a private member's bill. Uh, in the mm-hmm. House of Commons. Now, not many of those private members' bills mm-hmm. actually pass into legislation. How yep. ho- how hopeful are you this one actually will? I'm hopeful just because of the environment today. I mean, the environment today is very different from 2015. I mean, that's the first thing that Lenore said to me when I met with her. She said, don't expect this to pass into, <laughs> into legislation. It probably won't. But what it will do is it will provide more exposure on the topic of environmental racism. We could organize a press conference and we can get it into the media and all the newspapers. And all of that did happen. And that's, to me, important. You have to create awareness if you're hoping 
for people to be empathic around an issue. I'm just a hopeful person. I just think that the time comes for everything. The combination of the film, my book, the ongoing community organizing has created an environment right now at this time where people are willing to listen. People are more aware of environmental racism and how it manifests structurally. I think it's a difficult concept for people to grasp. When I started the project, I got emails from people saying, please explain to me how the environment could possibly be racist. It's a weird concept, environmental racism. But I think because of all the awareness that has happened, they may be ready. And I'm talking about government, of course, because we're looking at government, we're looking at MPs. And I'm just hearing things, I guess, um, from different people that I should be hopeful. Just different people in the background telling me different things. Um, <laughs> I hope they don't. I hope I'm not disappointed. But um, but if it doesn't, I continue on. That's just what I've done, right? I don't give up, and we do another bill. Hopefully, <laughs> if Lenore's up for it. <laughs> Never give up. Um, yeah. Can I ask you um, where do you think climate change fits into the problem of environmental racism? I think there's an incredibly close connection. Both are issues that uh, disproportionately impact uh, racialized communities, indigenous communities, black communities, and other marginalized communities, precisely because those are the communities that, independent of climate change and environmental racism, have been dealing with structural inequities for decades, right? Um, Since colonial times. The reason why it's a particular issue for those communities and the reason why we have what is called a climate justice framework is because we need to understand that if communities are already dealing with structural inequities, when climate change hits them oftentimes first, it also hits them worse because they're less equipped, they're less prepared uh, to deal with climate devastation but it's also much more difficult for them to come back from and recover from it because of those longstanding structural inequities that they faced. We're all impacted by climate change, but what we have to remember is that we are impacted differently in unique ways. And because of our social positioning, um, because of our socioeconomic status, because of issues around race, it's much more difficult for people to address climate change impacts if they are at the bottom of the socioeconomic ladder. Ingrid Waldron, I thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me. Ingrid Waldron is an associate professor and author of There's Something in the Water, Environmental Racism in Indigenous and Black Communities. Climate change affects all of us, but as we just heard Ingrid Waldron say, the impact on people's lives isn't equal. Cheryl Tilixing says the climate change movement needs to embrace that reality if it wants to achieve success. She's a professor of sociology at Ryerson University and has spent decades looking at the connection between the environment and racial inequality. Hello. Hi. Can we start with the link between racial inequality and climate change? How do you explain the connection to people who may not see it? Well, the thing is, is that there is no climate justice without racial justice. And what we've been able to see from the pandemic is that there are huge inequalities um, in terms of the groups that are most disadvantaged. And if we look at 
our cities uh, racially, it's easy to sort of see that predominantly white neighborhoods are better equipped to deal with the climate crisis. Really good examples here include access to a range of transportation options, better tree coverage, housing that is more resilient to extreme weather conditions. And when we look at where it is that the Black community tends to be located, those Black and lower income spaces are disadvantaged in regards to being able to be resilient in regards to the the climate crisis. They're also disadvantaged in regards to housing. They're disadvantaged in terms of the labor market and in terms of education or the criminal justice system. So it's the same processes as systemic racism and inequality that disadvantage them. And I'm really thrilled that, you know, we're getting a lot more discussion now that includes the environment along with all of these other different sectors of society. Now, you've been studying this connection, this intersection for years. How different, mm-hmm. how different are things today from when you started looking at all of this? Well, I think we've shifted a little bit from a certain amount of comfort with a multiculturalism perspective on race, where we would emphasize race as being um, colorblind or, or race neutral. And that was very much a barrier to sort of seeing power inequalities or, or differences in terms of the disinvestment in particular types of communities. And as a result of last summer um, and the activism that groups such as Black Lives Matter were participating in, there's greater recognition of the systemic inequality. So all of that language has now risen. And then if we partner that with the fact that the climate justice movement led by predominantly youth such as Greta Thunberg and and other activists um, that was happening just leading up to the pandemic, we were kind of primed now to actually link the two of them together. So that's kind of where we're sitting right now. I'm wondering what you've heard from Black communities about their experience with the climate change movement. Well, I think what's happened is that uh, a lot of people in the Black community, and again, it's communities, right, is the awareness of the fact that the environmental movement hasn't been as inclusive at at particular points. A lot of the environmental movement historically has come out of a very sort of wilderness uh, protection, conservation sort of orientation. And that has not included the livelihood concerns that Black and racialized populations really emphasize. So the Black community is now beginning to to turn to the environmental movement and to say, okay, um, we're the ones that are most likely to be affected if there is a climate crisis, and we care about climate change. But this movement, the environmental movement and the climate justice movement, has to become open to a broader range of perspectives. A lot of environmental groups that I speak to, they're really enthusiastic about people of all sorts of backgrounds attending and participating and being parts of their events and things like that. But they say, you know, we're not seeing particular uh, racialized communities, particularly the Black community, showing up at these events. And so it's about thinking, okay, well, where are these events? How are they being framed? Are they including a concern for uh, livelihood issues. So if we think about environmental policies that are, say, about em- 
involving renters or incentivizing landlords to make the housing stock um, better quality, then that would be the sorts of things that would then start to include people who would otherwise see themselves excluded. Professor, I thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much. I'm happy to speak with you. Cheryl Tilixing is a professor of sociology at Ryerson University. Hi, I'm Sandra Bartlett. I produced the Salmon People podcast about the fight to save wild salmon. Now I'm back with The Poison Detectives, a podcast about a nasty chemical that's poisoning the world. Yes, poisoning the world. It's a man-made chemical family called PFAS, and there are more than 12,000 chemicals in this family. It's in the material that firefighting suits are made from, and one woman went on a quest to find out if it gave her firefighter husband cancer. Picture in your mind a Canadian environmentalist. Are they outdoorsy? Do they recycle? Are they white? Too often, white voices are at the center of climate change discussions, but my next guests are exceptions to that, and they're working to change it. Jesse Frimpong is a communications officer with Greenpeace Canada. Chuck Odenibo is the founding director of Future Ancestor Services, a company led by Black and Indigenous young professionals. Welcome to both of you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Merci beaucoup. C'est fait un plaisir d'être ici. It is a pleasure to be here. Chuck, let's start with you. You've pursued work in environment and health, but you said you were dragged kicking and screaming into discussing racism. What happened that made that topic unavoidable? Whether it was being in sort of outdoor spaces and people commenting on the way I dressed because I decided to dress nicely, even though I'm going on a hike. Whether it was being in remote communities learning about the ocean and having people say, we're in Canada, speak English, but like only to the black kid and not to any of the other white francophones who were with me. Or whether it was, you know, a whole host of other issues. I was like, you know what? Being black is making my environmental work a lot more difficult. So I need to Mm -hmm. change that landscape so that myself, but then also other people who look like me, other black people in Canada, other black Canadians who are passionate about the environment can actually be able to focus on bringing innovation and creativity into environmental spaces to look for ways in which you can collectively, as a society, change our relationship with the environment for the better. And so I was like, I have to do social justice work because being Black is actively hindering my ability to support change in the environmental spaces in Canada. But uh, okay, there is just one other thing I wanted to ask you about, and it's it's something um, that you've talked about before. You you've been a speaker at an event, and had someone mistake you for an intern. Yeah, that happens quite a bit because I think um, for so many reasons, right? So it's kind of as you said in your intro. You know, what do you imagine environmentalists to look like? And so oftentimes when I show up for environmental conferences. I am the best dressed. Actually, every conference I've been to so far, I'm the youngest person, the youngest speaker. And not just by a little bit. I tend to be the youngest person by quite a bit. And then oftentimes, I'm either the only Black person, if I'm lucky, or the only person of color, if I'm not lucky. And so a lot of time, people see me at this event and they assume, oh, I'm just some student who's coming to learn. Or they assume that I am 
an intern and they'll, you know, be like, where's the coffee? Where are the bathrooms? You know, where do we go find this? And I'm like, I just flew in last night. I don't know. Why <laughs> Why are you asking me? Um, and, you know, people are obviously very polite about it, but it's very uncomfortable being othered. Jesse, I wonder if you, I'm not going to keep dwelling on examples, but, but do you hear anything that resonates with you in what Chuck was saying? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I am never going to be the best dressed person in the room, so that I can't relate to, and I'm a little jealous of. Um, but I think that you know something something that really stuck out for me um, is, is sort of like what you say, Chuck, about um, you know being drag kicking and screaming into the work. And I think I come from a human rights background, and my first real introduction to climate um, was interning with Oxfam on Canada's east coast, and it was doing work that was really about the rights of women farmers um, and gender justice and climate change. And it was sort of my first real introduction to climate as a justice issue. And I remember being quite excited. And then uh, a family friend who was also black sort of, you know, kind of did a double take and was like, well, why would you work there? That's a white organization. Mm. And, you know, the, the comment really stuck with me. Um, and, and I grew up in, you know, a rural white community of about 3000 people, you know, I didn't even need one hand to count the number of other, you know, black or racialized kids that were in my schools. Um, so being one of the only ones is, is not really a new experience. But I think the comment is important because, you know, I think so many big green groups and NGOs are, are really implicitly marked as spaces that are not for us. Um, and I think that's something I've struggled with and other activists of color I've struggled with have talked about struggling to find a sense of belonging um, and feeling invisible that their thoughts or experiences didn't really count. You have also, you've written that environmental groups, and this is a quote from, from what you wrote, are too white to solve the climate crisis. What do you mean by that? Yeah, I didn't choose the headline, but I think it's a very provocative one, and it raises a really, a really provocative question. And for me, there's really a disconnect sometimes in the way that we talk about diversity. Um, I think that sometimes we talk about it in a way that means, you know, who's on your staff um, and who's in the pictures and the videos that you're sharing. But I also think that it matters in terms of how are you conceiving of the struggle? Because to me, racial justice, um, you know, it's mission critical. If, if the movement wants to solve the climate crisis, it has to be addressing racial justice. Did it surprise you then that when you entered into this field that because of what the mission of these kinds of organizations are, that they would still have these blind spots? No, it didn't surprise me. Um, I, th I think that what we don't talk about a lot is that there are um, a number of racialized people who are working to change things from the inside and talking about things that they shouldn't have to talk to that other white colleagues should be recognizing but don't always do. It must get tiring, though, for you to be the one who has to raise. That's actually to both of you, to be raising these kinds of issues, putting your hand up, saying, wait a sec, you have to consider this. Yeah, it's definitely exhausting. And the, uh, the issue, well, there's so many issues, right? But one of the issues, right, is you want to be recognized as an expert in your field. And what gets really annoying is then you just sort of become the black, the guy who always has to bring up the race issue. Right. And so it tends to detract away from all your other sort of expertise. I've got a really strong background in sort of public health and environment and how they intersect and how they're connected. Uh, but oftentimes I also have to sort of be that person in the room to be like, okay, but we also need to consider that people's realities are different based on racism. And if we don't address that, then we're not going to be able to address X, Y, Z. The environmental movement is incredibly homogenous in its messaging. Right. And that messaging has been played to the point where 
anyone who believes that messaging is already on board and everyone else is not on board, but you're still seeing the same message because it's essentially saying that this is the way to think and this is the way to be. And so if you don't fit into it, you're not a good environmentalist or you're not being a part of the movement or you're being actively harmful, right? It creates this sort of dichotomy of you're with us or against us, right? So you're being actively harmful. And that makes me think of the individualization of societal issues that mm -hmm. we see very strongly expressed in environmentalism that tends to end up creating a lot of racism, right? So we see things in, and I'm going to use the Canadian context specifically. I remember in, I believe it was 2019, the climate change movement really became very, very mainstream. And so then you saw people throwing out suggestions and ideas like people need to stop flying or people need to have less children. We need to have less of a population. And we need to think about who those messages are hitting. Because when we say things like people need to stop flying in the most multicultural country in the world, right? Where so many Canadians are first or second generation or even the third or fourth generation Canadians, we have family literally around the world. And to say stop flying is to say, let's not, let's cut those family members off. Not all of us have the, the privilege, frankly, of having 10 generations of our family in one city. And so saying things like stop flying is inherently racist. And then you've got the ideas like, oh, people need to stop having babies. But then we kind of look at the way in which the global distribution of children happens, right? And people in um, lower income countries tend to have more children. And people in lower income situations use a lot less resources. And so if you're having people who are using way less resources than the medium, it then highlights just how incredibly racist and classist it is to say, mm -hmm. don't have babies. And so you have a movement that is throwing out these suggestions that inherently negatively impact people who don't look like them and who don't live like them. And then being surprised that you don't have people of color on board on these movements. Jesse, um, I could hear you uh, agreeing in the background with Chuck. I'm wondering what blind spots you see when there isn't more diversity in the room. And this, and you work at Greenpeace. Yeah, yeah, I, I absolutely agree with you, Chuck. Like, um, you know, I, I'm biracial, so my mom is from Canada. And my dad is from Ghana and West Africa. So I, I absolutely think we need to like have that lens when you're looking at suggestions like, uh, you know, stop flying you know, the sort of sacrifices and solutions that are offered just really reminds me um, of what a colleague sort of said to me earlier this week. It's that groups like Greenpeace have spent, you know, decades cultivating and talking to a, a pretty white and privileged audience, um, you know, so that's who is attracted to their organizations. It's, it's, it's who's on our supporter list. It's who's largely leading um, in senior positions, who's a spokesperson um, and, and who's defining the sort of priorities for our campaigns and, and our culture. Um, think of images of Greenpeace in the 1970s or who you picture wearing a Save the Whales t-shirt, right? Um, and, and I think it's important to realize that that's not a neutral choice. It's a choice that kind of, you know, sustains a culture of white supremacy. Um, and a culture of white supremacy isn't about necessarily always hate. It's, it's about valuing whiteness and, and white culture and devaluing what isn't white. I'm wondering, be, be, because you're part of, of Greenpeace, which, as you say, has a very high profile, it started here in Vancouver. I'm wondering, um, does being part of what is seen as a progressive organization make it easier or harder to confront racism? I think it's both. Um, 
because there are incredible people in my organization who are, are doing a lot of work. Um, Farah Khan is our deputy director, and she's been leading a strategic process uh, around making our, our hiring practices, our retention policies, our culture um, much safer and much more joyful for for staff of color. Um, but, it, but I think that a challenge does happen where that because the space is dominated by white progressives, um, I think it can, there's an assumption that they're, you know, that our workplace is, is welcoming and comfortable um, because the largely white staff may feel more, more comfortable. Um, and it can, I think when you self-identify as progressive, it can be harder to, to be aware of or to recognize uh, problems. I don't necessarily think like we're, you know, our parents Greenpeace of the 70s, but I also don't know that we're um, racialized folks Greenpeace right now. Um, but I'm really hopeful that we will. We could be. Now, we are talking here about two major crises of our time, climate change and racial injustice. And I, w- I want to know from both of you, how do you link those two for people who don't quite see the connection? Chuck, I'll start with you. So there's a couple of ways to link it because they everything is intertwined. And so there's a cultural way of creating those links, right? So when we think about the environment, when we think about nature, uh, when we look when we look at the language we use surrounding the environment and nature, and we look at pop culture, right? And we have a habit of heavily feminizing nature, right? Uh, so we always talk about mother nature. We talk about nature being a life giver. And we also have a habit of black or indigenous coding nature, right? So if we look at pop culture, if we look at the movie Frozen 2, and we look at the Earth's version Frozen 2, they are designed to look like black people. If we look at um, Avatar The Last Airbender, which is a phenomenal cartoon for anyone who's thinking, who wants to watch it, um, they have what they call the Earth Kingdom, where the cultures in the Earth Kingdom were modeled after African and indigenous cultures. And then if you look at um, Avatar, the movie with the blue people, the Navi people, uh, their entire culture was modeled after indigenous peoples in North America. And so the question then becomes, can you truly create a community, a society that respects nature if the society is sexist? And can you create a society that respects the earth and respects the environment and cares for the environment if they can't even respect the people that personify it through, you know, black people and indigenous people? Okay, Jesse, it's your turn. How, how do you how do you make that that connection between climate change and racial injustice? Uh, you know, I, I was just thinking about what Chuck said, and I, I do think that the pop culture element in storytelling is so key. Um, but in my and also in my experience, I think that the environmental movement is also, you know, full of compassionate people who do want to do the right thing. Um, But I do think we're also talking about structures um, that don't make space for doing racial justice work, you know? Um, And and so I think that there are some, you know, serious institutional things that can be done, you know, like pointing out where choices aren't neutral and that not having time or resources or, you know, saying to racialized staff, you know, sure, knock yourself out and do this on the corner of your desk is not really an excuse to, to, to do the or a way of doing the work, right? You have to reorder your priorities, um, the way you fund, the way you're allocating staff time to support racialized communities and build power in, uh, behind their environmental struggles um, because it's the right thing to do. It's how we're going to win. Choke probably knows this much better than me, um, but it, it also feels like an existential question for the movement. Like, where do we want to be in 10 to 20 years? Um, because younger activists, Gen Z is the most racially diverse cohort in history. And and I find that they plan for equity right from the start in a way that older generations don't. And like the other thing I wanted to sort of add on to kind of what you're saying is to sort of ask yourself, if someone is not like me, can they still listen to this message I'm sending out? 
and believe in it. If you just focus on sort of individualistic language that seeks to really sort of say, do this for the environment. On the one hand, mm -hmm. it does help empower people to feel like they're doing something, but on the exact same opposite hand, it hurts a lot of people who are unable to take out that individualistic action. And so when we think about climate and we think about adapting our society for the climate and becoming more climate resilient as a society, we have to incorporate social justice into that because if we create policies and practices and cultural practices that people who are racialized are unable to do, then we then create this dichotomy of saying racialized people are bad for the environment. And that's incredibly harmful as well. I really do feel as if we could go on talking about this for so much longer. Um, but I, I'm afraid we have come to the time when we have to say goodbye. But um, it's been such an interesting conversation, and I really appreciate you both taking the time to talk with me. Thank you. Thank you, Larry. My pleasure. Thank you. Jesse Firmpong is a communications officer with Greenpeace Canada. Chuk Odenibo is the founding director of Future Ancestor Services. We're not going to pretend that solutions to this are easy, but we do want to talk to another person who is taking concrete action to change things. Christopher Wilson is the first vice president of the Coalition of Black Trade Unionists of Ontario, or the CBTU. And he helped create the Green is Not White workshop, which has been delivered to more than 3,000 workers across Canada. Hello. Hello. Thank you for inviting me today. Let's start with that title, Green is Not White. What need did you see for this workshop in the labor movement? We use that uh, title, Green is Not White, uh, very intentionally because the environmental movement, um, many of the spaces that had been convened to talk about climate change and the reduction of greenhouse gas emissions uh, were predominantly white spaces, uh, to be honest. And we wanted to change that dynamic by giving voice to the Black community, racialized communities, and uh, Indigenous peoples to ensure that our voices are heard in this uh, struggle to slow climate change and confront environmental racism that's impacting upon our communities so directly. And we've talked before on, on our program about the need for uh, a quote-unquote just transition for workers leaving yes. fossil fuel intensive industries. I'm wondering... Yes. How, if I can use the phrase, how white has that effort been so far? Well, I, I think that's a critical question because one of the things that we look at in the context of our workshop is structural economic inequality. And the concern that we have and what we're advocating for in terms of what a just transition will look like is we don't want to reproduce the existing systems of inequality as we transition to a so-called green economy. So when you look at structural economic inequality, it's been remained quite static for almost a decade, where uh, black racialized workers earn about 70 cents on the dollar compared to our white counterparts. So when we look at the question of just transition, what we want to uh, advocate for is ensuring that transition to a green economy is inclusive of black racialized and indigenous communities. But what but what's why has it been so white in your view? I think one of the approaches that we've taken in this project is to make the debate more relevant uh, to our communities. Uh, very often, we found in the environmental uh, movement, climate justice movement, the focus has been on greenhouse gas emissions and the reductions of those versus speaking 
more directly to the lived experience of Black racialized Indigenous communities. So when we have discussions about climate change, we, we speak about the direct impact it's having on our communities, whether it's water contamination at Grassy Narrows or, or the disproportionate impact that COVID is having on Black and racialized communities. So we're approaching it from a different perspective, which is from a perspective of telling our stories. And in your, in your workshops, you have participants discuss myths around race and the environment that, and that it's just for white middle-class white people or that it's something racialized and Indigenous workers aren't really interested in. Why? Because sometimes uh, there's a perception that you need to be an expert to engage in the climate justice struggle. But when you ask people questions in the room about their lived experience with environmental racism, examples come um, from uh, across workplaces, across communities in very direct ways. I-, I wanted to ask you about another one of the myths that you discuss, and I will quote it here. Who cares about whales and owls when my children are facing police violence? I'm wondering what kind of reaction you got to that. Well, we wanted to ask uh, questions that are going to um, allow for discussion on the issues that are impacting our community. And police violence is very acute. I mean, we call 2020 the year of racial reckoning, you know, whether it's the lynching of George Floyd or the killing of Breonna Taylor. How do we prioritize as a community what issues that we consider most relevant? And I think what that myth brings and surfaces is the question of where does environmental racism, where is it located? And one of the ways we make that bridge in direct response to your question is we argue that police brutality is actually a form of environmental racism. Environmental racism can take many forms, and that's one of them, because that's the environment within which we're living. And and is that what comes up in in the workshops when, when when you bring that myth forward? Well, what's interesting is you get diverse uh, diverse responses to that, and that's exactly what we want. I mean, there'll be some people who will say, um, you know, the taking care, being my, being proper stewards of the earth is a central issue to us. And I'm I'm thinking about the long history of stewardship of Indigenous peoples in in Canada across the world as an example. And conversely, you also have people who will say. You know, that myth myth speaks to my reality in terms of where I'm living and where I'm located right now, which is, you know, I'm much more concerned about uh, police violence um, than I am about reducing greenhouse gas emissions. What what do you think is at stake if efforts on climate change and environmental justice are not more inclusive? Um, I I don't think I'd be, be too dramatic if I were to say it's really a question of life and death. I mean, that's what we're talking about right now. When you look at um, COVID and uh, the death rates of COVID and who's being impacted by COVID, you know, we use the mantra, we're all in this together. But, you know, that, that quite frankly is disingenuous because when you're looking at who's being most directly impacted by uh, the COVID virus, it's precarious workers. It's workers working the front line. It's predominantly workers in gendered and, and racialized sectors of the economy. When you look at other examples of environmental racism, whether it's toxins in the communities, which communities are most directly impacted? When you look at Indigenous communities with boiled water advisories across the country, it's, you know, so ironic that when COVID first broke, you know, people were told to wash their hands, you know, at every moment they can. And in the meantime, we're living in a country where Indigenous peoples in many parts of the country don't have access to clean water. So in my mind, this struggle around climate change and environmental racism really is a question of life and death. Thank you very much for joining us today.
Thank you so much for the opportunity to speak with you. Christopher Wilson is the first vice president of the Coalition of Black Trade Unionists of Ontario. And that does it for us this week. And if you haven't given us a review yet, get in there and give us one. Tell a friend. It all helps move the climate conversation forward. Thank you this week to the What on Earth team, our intern Serena Renner, associate producers Jennifer Van Evra and Rachel Sanders, producer Lisa Johnson, sound engineer Matthias Wolfson. This week, Molly Siegel is our senior producer and our executive producer is Joan Melanson. I'm Laura Lynch. Thank you for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.